Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvesting Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. You got your host here, Justin Townsend, and I'm with uh, my good buddy to the north, the Great White North. Uh, it's Canada. I don't know if it's still snowy and cold up there. I just imagine it's always snowy and cold. But uh, it's, it's, Adam's here. It's approaching 100 degrees right now, so it's not quite snowy. Ah, <laughs> uh, what's what's the Celsius there? Let me look it up. What's the temperature? I think it's, uh, we've been hovering through 30 degrees to 35 degrees Celsius. Let's see. That is, oh, it's 95? That's pretty hot. Yeah, I'm sweating right now. Are you? Me too, because yeah. my air conditioner stopped working. Uh, but it uh, Saturday was the first day that it made it uh, above 80 degrees it's Fahrenheit. That's 26 for you uh, Celsius people. So it's been, they said, it's uh, the longest period that it's been under uh, under 80 degrees in Colorado through like recorded history, Oh wow. which is interesting. So we, on the other hand, had a really hot spring, like an unusually uh, hot it like it's been raining, raining so much here, raining so much that my squash plants started yellowing uh, because they weren't getting enough sun because it was raining all day, uh, which which was not great. But that's okay; they'll bounce back. Um, 
Hmm. Thinking through current events. So July 21st, uh, I will be hosting a backcountry hunters and anglers pint night and trivia night at a Lowry beer garden here in Denver. So if you're listening to this and you're local, uh, please stop on by. We'll be doing the trivia thing. Uh, I've got some prizes to include some spice blends and some other cool stuff that we'll be giving away. And then, uh, you get to hang out with yours truly and, uh, sip some fine, frosty beverages uh on the patio there at the beer garden which is a really nice place been there a couple times good food good drinks and then i don't know adam what's new with you you just came back from europe yeah we just went on a big trip to europe and uh did like went through france and italy and croatia and slovenia so we just ate and drank the entire country all the countries dry and uh got to try some really cool food and got to see some cool things and hike in the Alps and yeah it was a great trip so now I'm scrambling trying to getting trying to get everything back in order again after uh, being away so it was, wasn't quite the relaxing kind of vacation <laughs> it's funny how much work happened or builds up once you're away <laughs> yeah exactly um well so today uh, I want to talk, this is our first of the official, um, I guess, Cooking by Cuts episodes. Uh, Adam and I talked about it like two episodes ago that we were going to kick this series off. And then last uh, last episode, I chatted with JP and Timo over in Germany uh, about German culture, hunting culture, and uh, cooking wild game in Germany, very different approach to things. So, uh, I thought it was a really good episode. I would encourage you to go back and take a listen to that. If you have not, um, it's very, very cool, good content. Uh, I think it's really valuable to learn about other cultures naturally, uh, but also to like their hunting practices and things like that. So, um, never saying that you 100% have to agree with them and what they do, but, uh, there's a reason behind even things we do in the States. It's especially based off the hunting systems in Europe and modifications and things like that. So still pretty cool to know about it and learn about it and, uh, connect with people around the world that are, are like-minded when it comes to, uh, the world of hunting and eating. Um, but today, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about the different cuts. Uh, we're actually going to be talking about one cut and, we're be talking about the front shoulder. It's supposed to be the first of our cuts we'll talk about. And so we'll talk a little bit about like what the shoulder is, the composition, all those things like that, all the way down to like cooking it. And then we'll have some recipes. And then next week, or it won't be next episode. There'll be an episode between this likely. Uh, we'll be talking about the flat iron cut, which if you don't know what the flat iron cut is, you should, because it's a cool cut that I'm guessing about, 80% of people have thrown in the grind pile, which is okay. It's okay. We'll talk about how it is okay to grind the front shoulder, but the flat iron, it comes off the front shoulder, and it's a cool cut if you want to work with it. It just takes a little bit of finesse to get you there to that uh, point. But um, so uh, I won't really belabor this anymore because I want to get down into talking about this thing because we got a, a good amount of stuff to talk about. So um, – I will say, Adam, jump in here at any point where you uh, want to go, but we'll just sort of talk about the cut itself. So the front shoulder on uh, – we're going to talk mainly about big game animals. 
not going to talk about small game, although they do have front shoulders too. Uh, they're, they're, they're four-legged creatures. They have front shoulders and uh, rear legs or rear hind quarters. So if we talk about the physical description of the cut, um, what, what it is, this is going to be more a little more practical once we get into the individual cuts. But uh, the front shoulder on the animal, for those that uh, don't know it, is the front quarter, front two quarters of the animal um, that is detached from the main carcass. Uh, and then you have like a series of different cuts of meat on there, um, which we'll dive into in just a moment. But uh, I would say that probably that this is the shoulders are likely one of the most commonly like destroyed pieces of meat on the animal. Um, I think that hunters use this as a reference point and they often look towards like that, uh, that back line or back hump on the shoulder, uh, to kind of get a good idea of where the lungs and the heart are on an animal. And depending on the position of that animal's, uh, leg and shoulder at the time of the shot, like you may get a lot of meat, uh, damaged, uh, from the impact and exit wound on that shot. So definitely something to think about. Um, I encourage everybody when you're thinking about your shot placement, we teach in all of our pig camps to sort of think about your shot placement for maximum meat yield. Uh, as hunters, we want to ethically, ethically shoot the animal, uh, and make it so it's, you know, the least suffering and we're able to retrieve the game quickly and that we're not damaging a bunch of meat with really crappy shots. So I would encourage everybody to really think about that when you're you're lining up a shot and you're pulling the trigger. There's some good resources out there on the internet if you're really curious about what is good shot placement. And uh, I think Onyx has a really good article about shot placement. They've even got some like diagrams of like the deer quartering to you, quartering away, like some different positions, and they show you where the heart and the lungs are. And I think it's important to understand where those organs are when you're about to pull the trigger so you know you're not like firing into the abyss but also to you think about it from the standpoint that a lot of people will aim and want to go for the heart um i don't typically do that because i do enjoy uh i do enjoy eating the heart and I think it's a really fine part of the animal that you get to bring home. And so, you know what? If you shoot an animal through the lungs uh, and take away its ability to breathe, uh, you are doing just as much damage as if you're shooting it through the heart. Um, so I would say for folks, learn where your lungs are in reference to the heart and reference to the placement on the animal. And think about those like double lung shots. I mean, it's a... Uh, you know, you can take and put an arrow through the lungs, and once you puncture those, like that animal's that animal's uh, destined for the kitchen. I would say. Um, I don't know, Adam. What are what are your thoughts on sort of shot placement in in reference to meat yield? Yeah, I, I agree with you about the heart because it's always sad to me when even if you feel like you hit a bullseye by doing heart and lungs, then you don't get the heart the heart to bring home, which is always kind of crappy and then you see a lot of shoulders just completely busted up 
<clears throat> by uh, especially if you're using um, shotgun slugs, I find they do a lot more damage. Um, and then you don't get to bring much shoulder home either, which is another one of my favorite cuts. So if I could kill a deer instantly by shooting it through the hindquarter, I think I would go for that. But obviously that's not <laughs> not the case. So <laughs> fun at the uh, at the pig camp we do we tend to We get the old Texas heart shot. Yeah. <laughs> I used to work for a, a butcher, just talking about meat loss. Um and we would get animals in sometimes that just were so shot up, there was just no meat left on them. Um, and that really instilled in me early on, before even before I started hunting, that how just how important shot placement was. Because uh, I never wanted one of my animals to look like the, the animals that I saw coming through there. So, um, I found the pig camp, we, we often, if we have the chance, we'll go for a headshot, which... Uh, is always really nice because then you get the whole shoulders intact, you get the neck intact, you get the the heart intact and everything. So that's my favorite. It's obviously not um, always a doable shot, but yeah, just trying to aim at a spot that will kill the animal instantly or in a very quick manner with as little meat loss as possible is super important to me. And I, I think you mentioned that uh, you really like the you really like the uh the front shoulder why is it that it's it's your favorite why is it at the top of the list i think it's uh partially due to its versatility um you can just make you know like curries and chilies and stews and tagines you can roast a whole you can braise it you can grill it you can barbecue it you can do pretty much anything with the the shoulder you can cook it whole or cut into pieces um there's just endless possibilities um, and it's kind of been funny to me that it's always ended up as a grind pile um, kind of cut because of that. But I think once people start cooking properly with it, uh, they will be way less likely to throw both of them in the grind pile. It does make good sausages and good grind, so I, I wouldn't say never grind your shoulders, obviously. But um, you're definitely going to start wanting to save at least one of them <laughs> once you once you've cooked with it properly. I agree. And, and I, I think really, I agree completely with Adam, like the versatility of a front shoulder and we'll, we'll talk about cooking it whole and I've done it and it does take a bit of finesse, especially with game. Cause you don't have as much fat as, as domestic animals, but I think it's, it's still really phenomenal cut roasted whole. But then like, once you break it down into those cuts, uh, you know, following the seam cuts, following the grocery store cuts, whatever, whatever you want to call them. Um, it's really, really a great cut of meat uh, that that contains a lot of flavor and some very tender cuts in there, despite um, the work and use that that front shoulder gets. Uh, it's still got some really great, nice, tender cuts in there. And so I'll go ahead and so let's talk through sort of like removing it from the animal uh, and getting it on the butcher table. We'll go, we'll go from there. And so I think about this and it's funny cause I just wrote, wrote this out like in my mind and I had to like walk step by step through the process of like, all right, well, how do we get the front shoulder off? And so I uh, wanted to go from like basically skinning like all the way. So let's picture we've got uh, this beautiful white tailed deer on the ground in front of us and we've already field dressed it. So we've already taken the guts out. So there's already a cut down the center of the carcass where we've removed the the organs and the heart 
and uh, the liver and the, all the other good bits out of there. And then uh, we're now ready to start skinning and quartering this animal um, because we're gonna have to we're gonna have to pack it out. We'll just say that. So what I typically do is start up at the base of the hoof. Uh, so if you follow that, it's what people would call the ankle bone, which traditionally on deer, I don't think that's an accurate uh, anatomy term. Um, but we'll say there. So if you come down, picture we're on an x-ray machine. If you come down from the top of the shoulder where it connects to the main part of the carcass, you're going to go, uh, that's your scapula, which is your, that's that triangle looking bone with the ridge on the outside. Below that, you've got your humerus, uh, which will then connect with what we would consider the elbow. And below that, you have the radius and the ulna. And on deer, those are going to be fused together, which is, looks very interesting. Like on humans, they're very distinct, two separate bones. But on deer, it looks like they're kind of like twisted together. Pay attention next time you you cook up your, your shanks uh, from the, the four shanks, and you'll understand uh, what, I, what I mentioned when you, when you scrape the meat off the bone. Um, so you have that. So then at the very base of the radius and ulna, that joint there, I'll take that and score that all the way around. And then I'll pull that lead leg uh, upwards to expose sort of like the armpit on the deer. And I'll then make an incision in the fur or hide all the way down from that, uh, mark on the inside of the, uh, deer's front leg all the way back down to where I made that incision to remove the gut. And this is going to be, if you're like caping things out for taxidermy or things like that, your taxidermist will have very specific guidance on how they want to do that. There's a lot of good resources online to do that. That's not what I'm focused on today. I'm focused on what's the easiest way for us to get the quarter off the animal and ready for the butcher table. So then um, basically I would just come back and now I've got this sort of seam that I can work with and uh, – I'll take one of those corners up at the top where it meets that joint, uh, where I've made that circular cut all the way around the ankle and then where that line intersects. And I'll sort of pick one of those little corners and start to peel it back and use my knife to work, uh, the hide off of, uh, the meat. And so what you're looking for there is you don't want to slice up the meat a bunch. You're aiming for that, like, um, it almost looks like kind of a thick spider webby meshy material between the hide and uh, where your silver skin is for your first cuts. I don't know, Adam, you, you may know the term for that. I don't actually. <laughs> um, I would call it a, a spider webby mass as well, I think. <laughs> That's fair. We'll call it the spider webby mass between the hide and the, the top layer of silver skin. So you're just going to continue to work and pull and slice and pull and slice and pull and slice until you've essentially worked that all the way off of the um, the hide off the shoulder, off the leg, all the way up to the shoulder. Now you've got sort of the hide flopped out of the way, and you've got just this still connected shoulder in your hand. And so from there, uh, what I really like to do is – I look at where the seam, where the base of the shoulder meets the main cavity on the animal. And uh, I use that seam, and I'll follow that seam. Uh, I guess it would be, if you're looking at the animal, it would be outward. Um, but you want to stay as close to the scapula 
as you can so that you don't hit the Denver steak. And this is, I think, a very common mistake a lot of people make is they just go in there and just start cutting. They're just slicing, 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 pulling back on the leg, slicing, slicing, pulling back on the leg, trying to get it free. And they cut that Denver steak in half. And uh, we're going to spend a whole episode talking about the Denver steak. And after we talk about the Denver steak, you're going to be thankful you know about the Denver steak. But it sits, it's a like clamshell piece of meat right behind the scapula. And uh, it's a really phenomenal, uh, it's got some nice marbling in it too, even on game animals, which I find is really great. And on, on wild pork, it's just, it's magical. But you don't want to cut that, so stay close to the scapula. And then once you get down to what would be like the high point on the scapula, where it's starting, you're starting to see the fore end of the uh, loin or the back strap, you're going to make sure you don't want to dig in that. There's like a natural seam that you'll see kind of folds over and you just want to keep following that until you get uh, the remainder of your top of the shoulder off, off the hide. And you'll see, and it's like a pretty cool, you think, what do you think, Adam? You think that was a pretty good visual description of, of removing any tips you would add in there? No, I was following along there pretty good. I looked up the what we were talking about. I think we we're talking about the adipose tissue in between the the hide and the meat uh, from before. I've always found that the shoulders just kind of want to pop off, like they're so easy to remove, um, almost like a Mister Mister Potato Head toy. And it doesn't surprise me how easy it is for humans to dislocate their shoulders because there's very little actually holding it onto it. Compared to the hind legs, which takes a lot of knife work to, to pop it out of the socket, like the uh, shoulders just kind of want to come off. So I've never had a problem removing them at all. Um, the issue is, like you mentioned, just being careful around certain sections that you don't cut into the the loin or the Denver steak or, or that you preserve the entire shoulder without getting too messy. But um, I find it's, it's one of the easier parts of, of butchering a deer. Um I'm not sure. I was looking at uh, I was looking at that, and I'm I'm not sure if it is adipose tissue because it says it's a, a type of fat, hmm, like connective with fatty cells. It would cells. be your body fat. Oh, someone's got to write in and yeah. and tell us what's what. <laughs> yeah, if you know about that, please write in. Tell us. Send us a message on social media. We're trying to figure it out. We'll figure it out. Somebody will tell us. Let's see. So I I think we've talked a lot about removing it, right? So now let's picture we've got uh end to end we've got the top of the shoulder and at the bottom of the shoulder we still got this furry foot attached uh hooves and all um usually from there before i put it in the game bag one of the things i'm gonna do is i'm gonna uh cut and wiggle and slice and twist until i get uh, the uh, tendons in that ankle joint free so that i can take the the foot off the trotter if we'll, we'll call it a trotter because that's what we're going to reference it as later when we talk about cooking trotters but um so you're going to have that um some folks keep it some folks i don't know i've heard of people giving it to their dogs um i've definitely heard of people cooking it which i didn't really know was the thing until i started looking into it more and now i'm just intrigued and i will say that i have a package of antelope trotters in my uh freezer here uh pending pending a recipe and pending cooking which should be very very interesting um but i'll say that to like make game time decision whether or not you want to keep those uh i would say even on an elk or something bigger as well you might get some more uh 
some more uh, use out of a bigger bigger cut like that. I would think that too the trotters like once you got the the hoof off, you have like a very like um, collagen rich product that you could put in stocks and get some good nice stocks in there uh, or some good nice gelatin into your stocks, which would be really good. Um, so moving from that though, if we move up the quarter, we're going to then get into the four shank and, uh, the four shank, as I mentioned earlier, is that like very, um, sinewy silver skin tendony. These are all very official words, uh, field piece of meat that, uh, surrounds the radius and the ulna. And a lot of folks will just either leave those or grind them or move on with life without them. And I can tell you, I cooked some two days ago, uh, and they're magical. Um, keep them, use them, braise them, slow cook them, smoke them, do all the above, put them in pots of beans. Like you can't go wrong. Keeps the shanks, keep the shanks. And in the words of Adam Steele, shanks and praises. Maybe we'll put that on a t-shirt here soon. Um. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. All right, so uh, just above the four shank, you're going to get what is called the arm roast. And this would be the pieces of meat that are attached to the humerus. So that's below the scapula, but above the um above the radius and ulna so that's going to be like your middle middle your joint up from the radius ulna and your joint down from the scapula so you'll see it's kind of like a i don't know softball sized piece of meat probably on a white tail um you'll also hear it referred to as maybe a clot roast or a arm roast or a uh, arm chuck steak or arm chuck roast, uh, depending on what you can do that. I've even heard that you can break that cut down smaller into steak cuts, and they're called Swiss steak, uh, which I don't think I've ever actually had one. But um, that's kind of what that muscle is. Uh, you know, just like all these others, we'll spend some more time talking about what the arm roast is, but just to give you some reference on the shoulder of what it is exactly. And then up from that, so we've talked about the trotters, we've talked about the foreshank, talked about the arm roast and then up from that we've got the blade roast and i'll let adam touch on that 
Yeah, so the blade roast is your basically your main piece of meat uh, on the shoulder. It's, it's got the most meat to it. Um, on domestic animals, it's probably going to be relatively fatty, lots of connective tissues. On wild animals, not so much. Um, lots of connective tissues, but not quite as much fat. Although you may see some from deer that feed heavily on corn or maybe some wild pigs. Um that blade roast is a, is a large piece of meat and it can be broken down into further, further broken down into more cuts. Um, we have the flat iron cut, the chukka round, which is also known as mock tender, uh, which is a delicious little cut for steaks, uh, and then the Dever steak as well. Um, the blade roast is super versatile, um, can be used for grind or for braising or for stewing or for chilies or for all sorts of stuff. So it's a uh, kind of your main piece of shoulder meat. And I, I think really like, you know, going through it, uh, thinking about ways to use these various cuts uh, is going to be really beneficial and understanding sort of like the, the makeup of the cut. Uh, but something that I think, is very common. People see a lot with a shoulder and we've mentioned it already on here is like you're getting a lot of cuts of meat in here mixed in with, uh, with collagen, with sinew, with silver skin, with all these different things. And in, in the culinary world, like those things all have a use. So I think it's something that I would like to encourage people to, to to do is like think about those individual cuts, but also think about how that whole cut can perform. And I think, Adam, you wanted to touch a little bit about uh, the collagen to gelatin process. And that'll be a good transition for us into into more of the cooking side of, of this uh, show. Yeah, absolutely. And don't mind me if you can hear my dog eating right now. <laughs> but... So basically, the the shoulder is where a lot of the the connective tissue exists in the animal, um, and that's what makes it a little tougher. So anyone who's tried to just grill out, like slice some shoulder, some random shoulder steaks, and grill them up, they're going to be a lot tougher than the than the loin or the hindquarters. Um, and you get all that connective tissue when you're you're working those muscles hard. You're carrying a lot of weight with them. Which is why the tenderloin, which has almost zero connective tissues, is such a tender muscle because it barely does anything at all. Um, all that collagen in there, which is just found in all the connective tissues that kind of hold that muscle together, collagen melts at 160 degrees Fahrenheit. So when you're slow cooking or braising the shoulder, which is usually the best way to cook it, uh, other than some some specific parts that you can cook differently but as a whole braising that shoulder and, and melting that collagen at 160 degrees fahrenheit uh usually when you're braising you want to keep it at you know 250 or under 300 degrees to to bring it up to that point that collagen is going to melt and transform into gelatin and gelatin is what gives you that like you know, lip smacking succulent flavor that you get from like a really good silk of pot roast or from, you know, like a braised dish. Say, think of like a braised pasta and gnocchi dish with, with fall apart meat. It almost gives you that kind of like it sticks to your lips a little bit. 
Um, a good example of this is if um, stepping away from the shoulder for a second, for if you make chicken noodle soup from scratch and you boil that chicken down, you transform that collagen into gelatin and you put the soup in the fridge overnight and it will set hard in the pot like jello and that is gelatin um and that's partially what makes the the shoulder so special is that's just full of it the shanks are full of it and the neck the head and the shoulder and you don't get as much of that from the from the hind quarters uh, so if you want these like really homey, delicious, lip smacking, awesome, succulent kind of pieces of meat, the shoulder is really where it's at. Um, so yeah, just work that magic of turning collagen into gelatin and, uh, and you, you won't be, um, throwing the, both your shoulders in the grind pile, I'll tell you that much. No, I agree with that. And that's a great transition too, because I do want to talk a little bit about like, if you are someone that does like a lot of grind, uh, and, and you just go with it, like my, my buddy art, he, every year when we shoot antelope, he just gets the whole entire antelope ground, uh, because they just like to make meatballs with it, like all year round meatballs, which is fine. You know, at the end of the day, I say cook what makes you happy. Um, so if grinding the whole front shoulder uh, is, is what makes you happy, then by all means grind the whole front shoulder, but I'm going to encourage you to think through that whole front shoulder a little more. And so I'm not going to talk necessarily about the individual cuts anymore. We're going to focus on really the whole shoulder itself. So, um, a lot of people leave the bone in, they'll take the bone out. They may leave the whole cuts together. Um, but what I want to focus on for the remainder of the show, as we talk about some of these recipes are whole shoulders. So that's talking about your, you know, your flat iron and your mock tender attached to your, your scapula, your blade roast, your arm roast, your foreshank, all those in one. We'll go ahead and take off the trotters because we'll put those aside for later. But uh, as we talk about that, I would say um, understand, like Adam mentioned, that there is collagen from all these connective tissues present, but there is also a general absence of fat. Uh, it's very lean muscle. It's getting worked a lot. Um, so that lean muscle is can be overcooked very easily. And I think if, just as Adam mentioned too, like if you just tear a hunk of meat off the shoulder and go throw it on the grill, you're probably not going to get something that's going to make you happy. Um, I want you to think through it a little bit more methodically. And uh, so we're going to use things like braising, things like slow cooking, uh, even smoking. And uh, I'll use this as a transition into my first recipe that I want to talk about. And that's a... Uh, a whole roasted pork shoulder. And so I will, uh, I will highlight this, that on domestic pork, you're getting different names for cuts than what we're mentioning here. Uh, a lot of what we're mentioning here is like beef based cuts, but I think it's very applicable to wild game because they're easily defined and you're not getting the large, like overgrown cuts that you're going to find on domestic animals. Um, which is why we're kind of standardizing the names of the cuts as we refer to them. So I'll lead off with that. Um, but 
this whole roasted pork shoulder was something I did in the smoker, and it took me a, an entirety of a day to do it. Uh, and I intentionally wanted it to take a long time because I didn't want to overcook it. But one way that I prevented overcooking was is that I used other fats in the slow cooking process. So um, I think in the initial part of whenever I started cooking it, uh, I made a mop sauce, which if you're familiar with Texas barbecue is a, a very delicious sauce. And I like this recipe a lot and I've talked about it a lot. And I'm very like proud of it. Uh, so the mop sauce uses like lard um, and other different uh, fats you usually have it on the smoker next to whatever meat you're doing. Like I think this one was like lard and beer and jalapenos and chilies and uh, garlic and onions. And it was just kind of sitting there just slow cooking next to where the pork was inside the smoker. And then every 30 minutes I would go and I'd do a ladle full and I'd put it over the top of the pork shoulder and baste it. Uh, that's where like the term mop sauce comes from because you could see people slathering it with like those little mini mops uh, that you see on like barbecue YouTube or whatever. I don't own one of those, so I just ladled it on. Uh, plus, I made an excess of it, and I needed to use it. Um, but that's a good way. You talk, you hear people. Um, oh gosh, Adam, I'm gonna mess up these two terms. Is it lard, larding, and barding? Yeah, that's right. I think. Yeah, so larding is where you're artificially marbling the meat with fat, uh, and you're using a larding needle. Um, I think barding is just tying on a fat cap. If I'm just drape it, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that could be like too. You think about people when they wrap, when they wrap things in bacon because it's pork meat and pork fat. You're actually you're barding it uh, versus larding. But this method is neither of those, but that is something the, that you can do is that you could either lard or you could bard. Uh, so when you take coal fat, for instance, and you use the coal fat and wrap around a piece of meat, you're actually barding it. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a pretty cool way to add extra fat into while trying to prevent the overcooking. Um, I think so as we went forward in this process of cooking this whole pork shoulder and it was a wild pork shoulder, not domestic. So uh, I did want to mention that is that about halfway through the cooking process, I, um, wrapped it in foil. I, I basted it again with a good amount of the mop sauce and I wrapped it in foil and I put my temperature probe in there and I just slow cooked it. I treated it like a brisket, um, because I wanted it to hit that temperature like, Adam mentioned, you know, the collagen starts to melt at 160, but I wanted everything. I wanted it to be shreddable, pullable. So I wanted it to get up above 190, 195. And so, but I didn't want it to do fast. And I think it was 16 hours it took to do this, but oh my gosh, that piece of meat, once it was shred and just like fell apart, was just like phenomenal. It had a nice, beautiful smoke ring, which you don't always see on, on game. And uh, it was still just like decadent and delicious and just tasty. Um, man, it's got me a little hungry. But uh, we've got in here a wine braised antelope shoulder roast. Do you want to talk a little bit about the process of, of wine braising and just talk a little bit about the shoulder roast in general? So you're braising, you're generally going to first take a like a large piece of meat so we're talking about a whole shoulder here 
Um, deboned or not depends how sometimes for me it depends on how big my cooking vessel is sometimes if leaving the bone in there's too much rigidity to to jam it into the actual pot uh, or the slow cooker or whatever so sometimes that necessitates me sawing the piece in half uh jointing it out or just deboning it all together in in order just to fit the meat in the pot and that's particularly a problem with larger animals um but even a smaller deer, sometimes a whole shoulder is not going to fit into your crock pot. So, so keep that in mind. It's not the end of the world before cooking to just actually break down your your piece of meat a little bit just to fit it where it needs to go. Um, but usually with a braise, what you're going to do first is is season your your piece of meat and then and then sear it in a little bit of oil, uh, really hot. You want it to get nice and brown on the outside. That's going to start some um, the Meyer process, uh, the Meyer reaction, which is like a akin to caramelization. So you get this browning happen. You're you're developing lots of flavor. You're developing a fond in the bottom of the pot, which is basically all the brown bits stuck to the bottom of the pot. Uh, and once you've done that, you're going to add in a liquid. In this case, being wine, which is an an excellent braising liquid. Uh, beer works as well, uh, venison stock, water, but wine is, red wine in particular with venison is really nice. And once that wine hits the pot, it's going to help lift all that fond that I just mentioned off the bottom. So you're just going to help it out by scraping it with a wooden spoon. And all that mired reaction on the outside of the, the piece of meat and the fond on the bottom of the pot is going to add a ton of flavor to that braise. Uh, that's why stuff in restaurants always tastes so much better. You know, people who really know how to cook can somehow make that pot roast taste so much better. And it's just those little things that really add so much flavor. Um, you can add vegetables at any point in this process. And then you're just going to let it cook on low for a long time. So we don't want to be boiling it at any point, you know, or, or cooking in a 400 degree oven that's just going to tighten all those uh proteins and, and all the tissues and it's going to kind of make it weirdly dry and and tough instead we're going to cook it super slow so for a shoulder um you're looking at probably one to to three hours uh if the shank's on you might need a little longer because shanks can be tougher than the actual shoulder the four shanks um, and then it's kind of up to you when you want to pull it out so you can start checking it after an hour if you like your your braised meat to be you know still have a little bit of like bite to it a little toothiness to it you can pull it out early if you want it just to like collapse when you just show it the fork then you can leave it in longer and uh, either way it's going to be delicious and you're going to take the meat out and the veggies out if you put any in there. Like, you can use, you know, uh, carrots and celery and onions and garlic or go an Asian route and use lemongrass and chilies and garlic, stuff like that, and scallions. You take that all, all out and then you reduce that liquid down into a thick sauce and then spoon that sauce over top of the meat. And what you have is just this beautiful, elegant delicious piece of falling apart meat and uh 
and you can get something quite like that with just a crock pot. Uh, but if you use a Dutch oven and, and do it in the oven instead, you're going to get something that's a lot more, um, like every step of the way is going to have a little more flavor. It's going to be a little bit better. So yeah, that's, that's my version of, of wine braising. Anyways, do you have anything to add, Justin? Um, I don't know. I, th- I think you hit the, you hit the nail on the head with that. I think braising is a great technique, uh, for all the reasons that Adam mentioned. And I, I encourage you, um, you know, whether you're using a standard cast iron or you're using an enamel coated cast iron, or you're just braising in like a stainless steel pot, uh, you know, you want to use something that, is going to be able to retain the heat and is going to be able to allow everything to cook pretty evenly. Um, you can definitely braise on the stovetop. It's more common to also braise uh, inside the oven as well. And I think, too, with braising also, too, like think about braising on a smoker, inside a smoker or braising on a campfire. Like these are all things that can be done. That's not the, – the source of the heat is not the method. It's the actual contents in the pot and the way in which you're doing it, sort of as Adam described. And um, another thing, too, is uh, using those braising liquids after uh, for your pan sauces or even saving them and reusing them. Uh, we kind of we, – we've hit on that before, I think, in other episodes where we've talked about braising. But um, I think it's really good. Uh, I was just looking at some other ways in which um, I could think about cooking whole cuts and really – I I think that the flavor profile of this cut's going to be very very standard not not very standard actually because you're going to be able to combine lots of different flavors with it and the fact that you're going to likely slow cook it unless you're pulling those cuts off you're going to be able to take those big bold flavors and put into that you're going to get a lot of aromatics in there things like using wine and beer and all these cool liquids will end up with that too i mean you even think about like uh oh gosh what is it is it carnitas that are made with the pork shoulder like things like that that are like slow roasted um you know that that would be another cool method to experiment is like uh roasting over the fire very slowly like uh a whole piece of meat uh, getting that. I mean, you could, if you wanted to, you could break your cuts down into the roast, either bone in or bone out. You could sous vide them uh, for a matter of time and then reverse sear uh, to get that nice, uh, delicious bark that you want. Or you could just sous vide them and shred them. Um, definitely doing like a slow cooker too. So another way of braising is is in the slow cooker or the crock pot. And I think those are all really good ways to get delicious uh, cuts of meat off this, where you're going to enjoy the use of the meat, of the liquid, of the collagen, of all those natural flavors that those meats are going to put off. I don't know. Miss anything, Adam? No, I don't think so. I think that's. I mean, I think that's the the bulk of kind of what I wanted to talk about. Um, I know that uh, you also, Adam, you've got a jerked deer shoulder recipe too. You want to talk a little bit about that, or I can talk about another another sort of recipe as well. Yeah, I can talk briefly about it. Um, that one's fun because I didn't have any real proper equipment for, for doing it. So I decided I wanted to smoke a whole venison shoulder. Had like a nice uh, dough shoulder, 
and I had a bunch of people coming over and I wanted to do something special. So I just had a gas grill and, and no smoker or anything or green egg or any of the fun stuff. So I just simply made a jerk sauce from scratch, coated it, marinated it, then put it on the offside of the grill and made a packet, a tinfoil package of wood chips and just cooked it on low all day while we went and swam in the lake and had fun. And uh, came back up hoping to hell that the deer roast was okay, that the shoulder was okay, and it was just beautiful. And I think it had cooked for like on super slow for eight hours, a little bit of smoke, and it just shredded apart and uh, turned out absolutely beautiful. So, so yeah, I just wanted to bring it up to mention that you don't need a lot of um, the proper gear or anything to, to be able to do this stuff. Like I did it at a rental property with a shitty uh, gas barbecue and barely any equipment, and it turned out absolutely delicious. So I just wanted to bring it up for that reason. No, I think that's really good too. Um, yeah, I think it just hits on the fact too that like this is this is such a versatile cut of meat. But while it may seem a bit intimidating to take a whole cut like this, a whole large cut like this, and and try to cook it, I don't think you would be far off. And I would encourage folks to sort of think about that. Like what I've started doing is. I will take one shoulder and I will break it down into all the seam cuts into, you know, my mock tender, into my flat iron, into my Denver steak, into my arm roast, into my shanks. And I'll take all those and package them up and I'll take the other shoulder and leave it whole bone in. Um, and I'll just have that because you can always break it down if you want to later. But I think it's such a fun cut to, to work with, to, to cook the whole thing. And so, um, I've always got, got it on backup, ready to go. Um, when I'm ready to cook something whole. So I don't know, Adam, we're getting close on time. Do you have any last thoughts? It was kind of a last thought of mine, but I'll, I'll, I'll save a little more. One, one fun thing I have done in a similar vein is, is taking a, a whole deer shoulder minus the four shank debone it and then rolled it back up and tied it into a big kind of rolled roast and then braising like searing and braising that so you're still cooking the whole shoulder but it's not like a flat kind of piece with the the bones all in it and that really change changes the makeup of it and it's, it's almost like a like a porchetta or something and uh that's another just way to to consider using the whole shoulder is is boned out, but still kind of kept whole, uh, and that works really well in like a really slow cooked or oven braise in the winter, um, especially if you don't have a lot of space to cook like a big flat kind of shoulder with a bone in. Um, so yeah, maybe give that a try too because it's really cool. You can also, you know, like uh, paste the whole thing with with herbs or or a marinade or something and then roll it up so the the sauce is kind of inside like spiraled inside the roast as well which is pretty cool so there's lots of opportunities to use this kind of whole cut in in interesting ways no i think it's great and um yeah just as i mentioned like just experiment try out see what you like see what you don't like 
You know, you may only shoot a couple deer a year. You may shoot one animal a year. Um, and, you know, on a elk or a moose or a black bear or something much larger, you may not want to try to keep that whole, uh, you know, whole shoulder. But you could always break it down into, like, the blade roast, the arm roast, and your shanks and still get a good use out of it. Or, you know, break it down into further into those seam cuts and, and get your your mock tenders and your flat irons and your Denver steaks and all those things off of it. But definitely, uh, I would say think through it next time before you start butchering and, and have a plan of like what you want to do with it. And I think you'll, you'll enjoy experimenting with this whole cut. Um, but thanks everybody for listening. Just, uh, as a reminder, we'll put all the show notes online. So those recipes we mentioned, we'll, uh, we'll get those there so you can click and follow along with those. And then, um, Please make sure you're following both uh, Harvesting Nature and uh, The Intrepid Eater on social media. We're all over the place, LinkedIn too. I mentioned that last week. I'll mention it again. Uh, pretty cool growing presence over there at LinkedIn. So uh, if you're a professional in the outdoor world or just a professional that has LinkedIn, feel free to connect with us. It's It's been fun chatting with people there as well. And then um, – you know, keep an eye out too. We've got some some new and interesting camps. We've got a few seats left in our pig camp this year, uh, and then we've got next year on the books as well. But we may sprinkle one in between there. It's going to be a new one. I'll uh, let you mull that over while we finalize the details on that. But uh, thanks everybody again. And uh, whatever podcast platform you're listening to, please punch that five star button. Leave us a review. Tell us what we're doing right, or you know, tell us what we're doing wrong. Thanks everybody. Have a good night. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.